0: On the pod today, Steve and Stan from Troj AI, the leading AI and machine learning risk management and security platform for enterprises. They help global companies build a better world by advancing trustworthy AI in industries like defense, robotics, autonomous driving, healthcare, and ag tech. So what does that all mean? Who wants it and how do they scale? Let's find out. Click the show notes to find out where you can find Troge. And please, if we've earned it, give us five stars on Spotify. It helps us defeat the almighty algorithm and lets us bring you more of the best content we can. Enjoy the pod. Hello, entrepreneurs. Hello, builders. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to to artificial intelligence. This is kind of an interesting one because when you read the copy of the website of the founders we're talking to today, It's not in layman's terms, and I'm going to find out why. I want to know, does that matter? Do we need to understand this, or just does the customer need to understand this? Because it's a really fascinating topic, and we're going to try to get Stan and Steven to talk about the company and the solution in layman's terms. But before we do that, co-host Dan has returned. He had a hiatus for a few episodes. He's now back, Dan. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> okay, so two things before we welcome Stan and Stephen. We're going to do our little gab at the start of this episode. One thing, I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but I was just thinking about it this morning, and I was thinking about why it matters so much to us. We're going to try to get Stan and Stephen to walk us down the road of how they're selling their solution, how they're getting their lead customers, what that looks like, and we hope they go there with us. <laughs> But at the incubator, you and I are trying to create sales focused founders from the jump. Why do we care so much about that? I was thinking about that this morning and I really love that we're heading in that direction. Why do we care so much about that? Just just riff on that for a minute
1: yeah great question and uh, thanks for giving me lots of time to think about that one um, <laughs> you know uh, I uh, I'll speak to it from an angel investor perspective and uh, you know uh, we need more angel investors and we need more people with experience as angel investors to help founders and one way to encourage angels into the market is to lower the risk of their investments because you know a lot of these things fail eight out of ten or Perhaps it's even higher than that. And if we can find a way to help founders um, succeed or have a better chance of success in this tough world, then uh, we will attract more investment into it. And of course that will attract more founders. And I think it will have a really positive impact on the whole ecosystem. And, uh, uh, you know, we think sales is the key. Uh, We see a lot of tech companies who aren't sales focused. I don't think you're going to hear that this morning, uh, because I know Stephen and Stan, and uh, uh, this is really important part of launching a business. And uh, you know, founders tend to want to focus on their their awesome technology, but uh, we believe they need to spend, you know, as much of their funding as they can, uh, perhaps the majority of their early stage funding on sales and marketing, finding those customers, getting you know, innovating with their customers. I, I think it's just so important early on and and in in one way, it'll help them to not have to pivot too much and uh, pivots are expensive and they take time and energy. Um, so uh, you know we'll see and I, I think you're seeing lots of bigger, more established accelerator programs focused in this area now as well. so uh, sales is sales is important even early early on. I wonder how many
0: first time founders, Are sales obsessed from the jump? Do you think it's a low percentage? Because one of the things that we've seen, which is, you know, kind of a double-edged sword is, and I've been guilty of it too, is you get really product obsessed founders, which is great because they love the product. They love the solution. But then, you know, you go down this rabbit hole where like you do the merch drop and you do all these things, but you haven't gotten enterprise level lead customers or you haven't established yourself sales wise maybe that's just because they love the industry and we love our startups. That's just what entrepreneurs do. But I wonder how many of us are sales focused from the jump. I would bet it's actually pretty low.
1: Yeah. Uh, my thought is they're sales focused on the wrong things <laughs> hmm. because, uh, you know, uh, I always tell people the most important skill of a, uh, of a startup entrepreneur is sales because you're selling to a lot of different people, you know, employees, uh, Found, you know, funders, importantly, um, in many cases in our region, you have to get the government engaged to help you in one way or another. And, and of course, you're looking for early stage customers. And uh, so they tend to be really sales focused and do a very good job at raising money, for example, but uh, not as focused on getting that first customer. Of course, we know the best money comes from your customer, right? <laughs> mm. And uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. But... Uh, I think we just have to break the stigma of sales, and uh, and that's a that's a long term, age old problem, and I, we haven't done it yet. But uh, you know, sales is such a key quality in uh, early stage entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, when I talked on the podcast to Lori from Four Eyes Financial, one I found her incredibly formidable, um, but also we had a good conversation about how a lead customer can change your life, or, or maybe how the right lead customer can change your life. Talk a little bit about that too, because you've seen that in in, in the time that you've been around.
1: Yeah, well, they are such a good example. So a textbook example of a lead customer because uh, the most good innovation comes from your customer. So if, you, if you're building a product, you want to build it with your customer, not for your customer, but your early stage customer. And of course, you need one that's credible and respected in the market, and it's leaning forward in what they're doing and is really going to help you build some uh, competitive differentiation in your products. And uh, your example of Four Eyes Financial, they found a lead customer. Um, and uh, that lead customer has taken them on a journey. And, uh, you know, the journey has been has been helping them find other customers and uh, helping them pivot to product sets that really mattered that they didn't really understand when they first entered the market and and they get a foothold in the market and now you know now they're now they're really dominating uh, components of that market in the country and uh, and you know in some cases lead customers can be strategic investors too uh, which is a bit of a double-edged sword but it's uh, it, it can lead to some really good places
0: mm-hmm And we have some stuff coming out of the incubator this year and next on the sales side that that we're pretty pumped about. So that'll be a lot of fun and we'll talk about it on the podcast when it comes. So let's switch to AI. Um, Have you ever read the book, Where's My Flying Car? It's kind of like a cult classic in the tech community and they're releasing new updated issues. And I just got this beautiful baby blue hardcover version. And it's a a deep dive in my mind about why we get the future wrong. You've seen images from the 50s that, you know, tried to suppose what 2000 would be like or what 2020 would be like. And it's always wrong. There's like elements of it that are right, you know, But it's usually wrong. And so when people had said we'd have flying cars by the year 2000, well, this this guy's premise is, where's my flying car? And he goes through economically why we get it wrong and then why it's much slower than we think it is. And then it kind of all comes at once. And so when I think about artificial intelligence, it's funny because in my mind, it, it doesn't go to like the robot butler that you see in these books where these images of, you know, it goes to cars, which I know is probably one of the places um, that your mind goes. It goes to software. Most people, if you ask them what AI was, I, I bet you you'd get a, a, uh, the gamut of answers from people. Where does your mind go when you think of AI? Am I right that you're such a car guy that it goes directly to EVs and, and autonomous driving?
1: <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I always think about is, uh, and I tell my students this, um, they're graduating at a time where we have sort of major technological innovation and change driving change in the world. And more so than when, you know, when the internet came along, um, and it, because we have, uh, layers of technological change, changing the world. And, uh, a lot of it's driven by AI or machine learning type capabilities, like these guys are into, um, and of course, I go to cars because I like the auto industry, and I like to study it, and and uh, I like to under you know I like to help people understand how um, seemingly simple technological change, like the other side of you know the, like the electric car, which was you know invented in the early 1900s, um, can change an industry, and uh, and then you layer on top of that AI applications like self-driving, autonomous car software. And uh, that's going to change not just the auto industry, but, you know, uh, I was talking to my son who's a civil engineering student. They're doing a project on uh, transportation planning for cities. And you can imagine, I was trying to explain to him how self-driving cars are going to free up roads and parking lots and, and uh, urban centers. that We are now going to have the possibility to be rejuvenated Uh, because of this technology. We just won't have as many cars on the roads. We won't need all the infrastructure we have today. So it's, you know, what a fun problem to be working on. And uh, that's not the kind of change we think about when we think about AI software. You know, Matt and I talked yesterday to a company that's in the medical uh, devices field and in the skincare side and they have Stephen, this will be good for you guys actually they have databases of thousands and thousands of images that they use to help triage electronically potential problems that people might have with their skin um, you know it might be a cancerous legion and so they can you can take a photo of it or scan it and uh, they use their databases to triage whether it might be cancerous or not and to send them right to the right doctor and and, and uh, and, you know, again, you know, what's that going to do for society? Well, it's going to, you know, it's going to help those people that have to wait a year and a half to see a dermatologist, you know, they can see the the virtual dermatologist right away and uh, hopefully that'll have a meaningful impact on their health. So, you know, I think AI is going to touch every part of our lives and um, and it's going to disrupt our businesses. And it's kind of fun to be talking to a company that's, you know, involved in that, involved in that today.
0: Yeah, let's get the guys involved here. Um, If you look at their website, which we will put in the show notes, there are six industries um, that they think their solution will touch. And maybe this is just the first six or the broad six. And interestingly, med tech and Autonomous Driving are both on that list. So it ties in perfectly to what we were just talking about. So we have Steven and Stan from Trojai on the pod this morning. Good morning to you both. Steven, let's kick you in first. So... We always love talking about the origin story. I can remember one of your first pitches. In fact, I was lurking in the background um, because the origin story is what all first-time founders are listening for, or people who haven't even started a company yet, and then we'll get into what your, what your solution is doing out in the real world. Um, but for those just starting, for those getting going on their own journey, Let's talk about the origin story of Troge a little bit. Maybe take us back to that first pitch or one of those, you know, first nights where you engaged the entrepreneur development company in the the incubator space to, to get launching. Talk to us about that.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. Th- so thanks very much uh, for having us uh, today. Um, so our uh, our origin goes back to 2019 um, in terms of Troge AI, but our journey starts with my co-founder James Stewart who is a uh, he's a phd in computer science uh he had a previous startup doing uh video analytics so uh, very early ai application to analyze video for the early detection guns and fights and he actually did that so he comes out of a policing background cybersecurity and policing james we had uh that very unfortunate uh, shooting at parliament hill i think back in 2014 and James saw that, and it really bothered him that uh, in a place that had so much video feed that we were not able to do more. And, and he started thinking about what it would look like to do a solution that would do early detection of guns and fights. So fast forward, James starts a company called AI, uh, his Canadian version of AI spelled E-H-E-Y-E, which to this day, we still fight over whether it was a good idea or not, a a good name. But anyway, (laughs) so he starts AI, builds that team out. Uh, I think it was acquired when he had 10 or 12 folks on the team, got acquired by Public Traded Patriot One Technologies. Uh, He goes on to be the SVP of video analytics, um, builds that team further uh, out to to about 30 people. Most of them ended up being in Fredericton and and that uh, team is still there today. And it was at that point, uh, so here he is, SVP of a a publicly traded company, and he starts talking uh, to me about sort of this fiduciary responsibility of, you know, making sure that technology works. Uh, They're doing something very important in public safety, but he becomes increasingly aware of the vulnerabilities of A.I., the poisoning of data, the hacking of models, uh, the attacks at inference. And he said, as, as, a, as an SVP he said, what, what am I on? What's my public or my, my personal uh, sort of liability to these kinds of things? And that just started that conversation. And so by 2019, he was talking about and was well-versed in the uh, sort of threat landscape of AI. And we started talking about, you know, who's going to build the protections for this stuff. And of course, that's very much in James's DNA, and that's really where Trojai comes from. Uh, and in fact, I eventually convinced him that he should not be the SVP of a publicly traded company where he was getting a really good salary and enjoying the the fruits of his previous labors, and said, "Hey, you know what? You should give it all up and start another company uh, from square one and enjoy all the stresses and strains of doing it again." So he did. And uh, so, James and I co-founded Trojai in 2019. Um, In 2020, we we actually went through the program with Dan to, uh, you know, the Enterprise St. John um, program to look at that, what the commercialization might look like. And I can uh, reiterate Dan's push on sales and his push on us to talk to customers over and over and over, um, which was uh, very important. Uh, but very painful process. Um, and uh, and including Dan's push to always be selling. Um, and you know, if we go back to if we end up touching on it more, it'd be interesting. But you're you know Matt, you asked, are most entrepreneurs uh, sort of sales heavy or sales light? I've never met a sales heavy, uh, startup entrepreneur. Um, they can sell their ID, they can sell their often to investors, but they have no idea what it takes to sell to customers. It's shocking. They often have the skills, they just don't have the comfort. And we're at that stage yeah. now. And it's the hardest part of the journey is, is those early sales uh, calls. But Anyway, so that's that's how we got to where we are. We 2020 went through TechStars and did our pre-seed round. 2021, we a lot of heavy lifting building product, and then at the end of uh, 2021, we closed our uh, our seed round. And uh, yeah, we're squarely at that point where doing those first sales, and we're focused on entirely enterprise sales, which uh, brings a whole different wrinkle into how hard that sales process is. But uh, yeah, that's where we're at, and um, yeah, Stan. Ha- you know, I'm glad Stan's here because you guys want to talk about product. Uh, he is the guy that has navigated, uh, you know, for two years our product development, and it. They've done a fat, fantastic job on the product side, uh, but now we got to work with clients.
0: But well, when we get to Stan, the, the thing that he's going to have to do for our podcast listeners is he's going to have to tone down the technical language by a factor of ten. Oh God! For us all to come on the journey with you, Stan.
3: I'll try. I,
0: That's going to be your issue.
3: I'll, I'll, I'll give the one minute technical, you know, jargon speech, and then I'll try and you know bring it down a little bit. You, you know, it's funny you say that because some of the people that we work with on the data science side, I'm primarily just the director of software engineering. Like I build the infrastructure around this insane black box that these guys are making on the data science side, you should talk to them, bring them on here and get, and get our principal data science scientist, Max talking. Um, yeah, he makes my eyes glaze over. So, um, awesome. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> Let's put a pin in that for one minute and come back to Steven. Um, just let's just wrap up the origin story and then we'll move yeah. on. Cause I, uh, we are going to come to sales for sure. And I'll flip that to Dan. But I am curious, too, on the tail end of this episode, what worked in your incubator journey? Obviously, that matters to us. Dan and I care a lot about incubating the next round of funders. And I know you've done CDL, you've done Techstars, Montreal, all that stuff. So maybe just keep that in the back of your brain. But before we leave you, so we know James comes from a law enforcement background um, gets interested early in making these systems robust because it's frontier tech, and frontier tech is buggy. And so, how do we protect this stuff and protect people? What about you? I, I, I think I, I don't think I heard much about you. Where does where's the inspiration come? Have you been working with AI systems for some time? Where did it come from, and how did you meet James?
2: Yeah, it comes. <laughs> my uh, my journey it comes from being uh, a friend of James, really. So, I did the first half of my career was uh, banking. Um, I worked for Royal Bank in Toronto and Tokyo, and then I worked for Barclays Capital in the investment banking division in New York City for uh, all through the late 90s. I moved here to, um, uh, I, I switched into banking into in industry, um, and I did that for a few years here in Atlantic Canada. And then I was at a crossroads in my career trying to decide, do I continue the corporate journey or do I do something else? And I actually decided to not continue the corporate journey, which would have had taken me away from Atlantic Canada. I decided to stay here. And I sort of fell into working with small and medium sized business in Atlantic Canada. And so since uh, early 2000s, I've just done a, a number of roles, often around the finance side, doing corporate finance advisory or management work. So that's how I sort of got into the startup space. Um, including, you know, my, one of my early startups was Pomodori Pizzeria, uh, hmm. completely out of technology. But my partners there, Keith and Janice, we started uh, Pomodori, and, and I was uh, part of that for the first seven years uh, before uh, they took over. And, um, and so it's, it, the reason I'm doing what I'm doing now is because I've known James for 20 years. Um, we actually met on a judo mat. Uh, you know, James and I have a very combative relationship. Which has done very well for us as a founder team. Um, we uh, we can't fight. Well, he probably can still fight. I really can't fight anymore on a judo mat like I used to twenty years ago. But we still fight uh, like we're uh, we're we're twenty years younger. Um, but that allows we fight through every idea. We challenge each other all the time. Uh, we have an exceptional founder relationship that is probably. Uh, for us, the core of what's, uh, it's it's allowed us to do what we do now, just that mm. relationship we have with
1: each other.
0: Dan, I saw you wanting to get in there.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I had a couple of questions, but um, to that note, the founder relationship, like, like um, how how important is it for founders to be able to have that level of trust and respect for each other? to have those really hard conversations every day and work through those challenges. And, and, you know, that's a, that's a quality I don't see very often in people uh, let alone, let alone uh, technology folks. And uh, so help us understand that a little bit, because I think that is really important and uh, you bring up such a great point there.
2: Yeah, it it is important. I don't I don't know how easily you can engineer that relationship. So you know, having gone through a number of other incubators, where we get to see other uh, founder uh, teams and and solo founders. And and by the way, so James's first startup, he was a solo founder, and I ended up coming on the board, and so that's where we started to forge our working relationship together. But um, yeah, I. It's, it's critically important. I see lots of other founder teams still manage through it. It just, for James and I, we are super lucky to have that relationship and it makes it easier. It doesn't mean that other founding teams aren't going to be able to navigate through it without such a strong relationship or even solo founders. But I tell you, it is way easier to have a founder that you have that level of trust. It takes that one issue off the table. Um, We've gone through some pretty tough times already, and at no time has, has it really shaken the relationship. So with that off the table, you can do all kinds of other things. And, you know, if we were to do it again, in fact, James and I talk about, if we ever have the opportunity to do another startup together, the one thing that we might be missing is a sales founder, Like that BD. So now we got kind of a finance and operation guy in in me. We got this really technical, smart guy who's got good founder experience in James. If we had a sales founder the next time around, we might have the trifecta of success. But, you know, look, at the end of the day, having a good founder team is uh, is just really helpful. And it eliminates a whole bunch of problems that uh, means you can concentrate on the other stuff for sure.
1: Yeah, and, and Matt, I know you want to get into uh, the product, jump into the crazy world of AI, but uh, I have one more quick question. And, um, you know, you talk about uh, the importance that we discussed early on around hanging with customers and um, understanding their problems. And But you ran into this this challenge in that you're selling into the enterprise space, and it's just hard to get to those customers it's hard to get to the right people in those large organizations Uh, tell us a little bit about that journey and any advice you might have for some founders in terms of how they do that when they're selling into the to the enterprise space
2: yeah um boy I wish I had advice that I thought was meaningful at this stage because if I had that I might not be so concerned with our current journey but it is you know, selling to enterprises and, and what we're talking about is you know, Fortune 1000. In fact, the few clients we've been talking to most recently are a Fortune One Hundreds. So these are global enterprises with billions of dollars of sales. Um, they're uh, the scrutiny they put you under, the expectations. And, and, and again, I, I'll invite Stan to talk about this a bit because as, as the engineer and, 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 and someone looking after the product, he's having to deliver and jump through the hoops of these enterprises. So what, so what happened for us is we thought that the AI market, there's going to be about a mid to large size corporations wanting our product. Turns out their maturity level isn't quite there. Um, and the drive or the need for them to protect their AI and have uh, you know, deep insights into their AI isn't nearly as pressing as it is for enterprises who have these massive brands who are utilizing uh, models to an extent that we're actually a little bit surprised uh, with. And so we just naturally over the last year, we've been pulled increasingly to enterprises who uh, have a clear need for the products uh, that, that we've built. Um, but then selling to them is, so, so they, just to give you an, an urgent uh, requirement in an enterprise where they say, oh boy, this is so important, this is one of our highest priorities, that means that they will buy from you in the next six to 12 months at best. So that's their urgency. So for a company mm-hmm. that is desperately trying to get to revenue in the next three to six months and your clients aren't planning on paying you for six to 12 months, that is it's hard on the head, right? Where even you know our investors are saying, where are the sales? Where are the sales? And we keep talking about this great sales pipeline that we've developed very slowly, arduous journey, but we've got it. And we're we're right on the edge uh, and that tipping point of getting sales but we're right on the edge of the next six months where all of a sudden it all falls into place. So that's hard on your head. Your team's going, I don't get it. Why isn't anyone buying? Your investors are looking at you. Why isn't anyone buying? Um, they're buying. It just takes them uh, at best 12 months in an often 18 and 24 months. It's uh, it. So any anyone looking at doing a startup and thinks that it's all going to be enterprise sales, just be prepared for 12 to 24 even 36 months from the day you start before you have a product ready for an enterprise environment um and again stan you you're seeing it now you're seeing what these guys are looking for and we are still racing to deliver what some of these customers uh, expect from our product
0: so i'm gonna i'm gonna struggle to get you guys out of here at the agreed upon time because i'm just (laughs) furiously scribbling and this is going to be super fascinating for our listeners so how do you, before we come to Stan, how yeah, do you, yeah. if you have a sales cycle that at a minimum is six to 12 and probably more like a year or two, how do you, for founders listening, how do you tactically deal with a, a long-term sales cycle like that? Uh,
2: I, again, I, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, there wasn't much of a tactical uh, sort of shift in, in preparing because there was, there was just this shift with the, we knew the market or, We thought the market would want us uh, in in that sort of smaller enterprises, smaller smaller corporations would want our product. And so we had planned on sort of a three to six month sales cycle with some of those. And we had thought about kind of doing trialing and pricing that would allow them for early adoption and then we can convert them to a paying customer. So tactically, we weren't prepared for the fact that those enterprises were like, yeah, we're not really ready for that. We're not mature enough. We can't actually integrate your solution into our platforms because we don't need them right now. But well, during that journey, we started getting some inquiries from uh, some much larger uh, enterprises who said, oh, we are mature enough. We do need this. And so tactically, all we've done and start talking to those enterprises that need our product and then try to figure out a way to survive until they start paying us. Now, (laughs) so so, some, but some of the tactics we've done, so we've, we've, we've engaged, we've had, we've delivered two enterprise solutions so far, but they were six month engagements where it was a paid engagement. Um, And and by the way, the pricing, uh, just to give you an idea, the first enterprise engagement we did, the, uh, the, the, you know the, the company asked us. So, what are you going to charge? And we sat around. And we said, uh, "How about ten thousand dollars U.S. per month for six months?" And James mm-hmm. and I thought this was good. The, what? A, this is a stupid number.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: the response from the enterprise was, "Oh, okay." And we kept on. We just kept on talking about the deployment. James <laughs> and I, were like, and man, we we underpriced that. You lowballed. The, oh yeah. So the next one, we priced fifteen thousand dollars us per month and they said oh okay good let's keep going and we just kept going to give you an idea we've got a poc that we're uh just about to deploy and if we're successful in that poc this customer has already negotiated a 12-month engagement at a price of forty-two thousand five hundred us per month for the first 12 months and that's the first one where they said, "Ooh, that's a bit high." In fact, I should say we went with 50, right? I mean, and you can tell by these numbers. Talk about round stupid numbers. 10,000, 15,000. So James and I said 50,000. And they said, "Ooh, you're a bit high." And we're like, "How about 425?" Okay. So so that part, so so you know, again, all these challenges with navigating the environment, trying to understand what the customer wants, And then the pricing, but the pricing's not the issue. It's the time and it's delivering something that they're prepared to pay for. And they will pay for it if you can deliver that solution. So, tactically, nothing. We didn't do anything other than adapt as we went along and responded to what the market was telling us.
0: Yeah. And Stan can jump in here too. Um, I know, Stan, you've been sitting here for 30 minutes just listening (laughs) patiently. I'm enjoying it. I appreciate you. you, For these six month sprints, Were you having to build custom solutions?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, For the most part, yeah, our first paid engagement, um, it was a top 100 defense contractor, Um, they weren't even interested in the actual idea of getting an AI framework or, you know, the scalable enterprise solution to essentially evaluate their models. They were more interested in kind of a paid engagement to create a model that would essentially do network security for uh, a very high profile operation, let's say um, Uh on one of their vehicles. And, um, yeah, that was totally unrelated to what we were doing. Our second one was actually very much, um, in the space of what we were doing it. We, we essentially got paid to build the product for what they needed. Um, Steve, feel free to stop me if I go too far on it, but (laughs) essentially it was, um, it was essentially, um, the, 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 the space was um, there were these financial ads that could yeah. have illegal entities in them, whether it be text or images. They're very scrutinized in certain places of the world, and uh, these ads are turned out all the time by broker dealers. And uh, you know the broker dealers financially incentivized to create an ad that is going to entice people to give them their money to invest. And there are regulators that are essentially saying you cannot use certain language. And these ads are getting churned out at such a rate that a lot of these regulators have adopted the use of AI to go over these ads and basically say, oh, you can't put that fat stack of money there. That's uh, Because
0: there's too much volume?
3: There's just too much volume. So they've, they've resorted to AI and, and essentially we had a natural language processing um, uh, you know, domain-specific uh, solution that we built for them. And it is now integrated into the product and they, they really enjoyed it. But navigating the team's in such a large enterprise like this, we've had, we've butted heads between, you know, what do the data scientists want? And what do the security people want? It's a a double-edged sword. It's a two-sided problem. There's the robustness to how well your AI will perform outside of its trained distribution. Like how well does it generalize? If you have a, a, a computer vision classifier that takes pictures of fruit and you tell it, well, here's a banana. Okay. It'll work on that. Well, here's a carrot. Here's some celery while your your distribution has drifted. You're not. You're now applying this model that you trained on fruit to a task that is outside of its trained distribution. Um, um, essentially, I forget where I was going with that. Sorry.
0: No, I'll I'll, I'll, ju- I'll jump in and get you back on track. This is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. Hi, so edit. Be, no, no editing. This is a podcast. This is beautiful. So before we come back to your your solution and the and the core value prop of the business the listeners want to hear your solution as it stands today but but i am really curious those custom solutions when you do those 6 month sprints is that a net good because you get you know you get exposure to enterprise level customers your team gets some you know experience building these solutions for for paying customers or does it take away from the core value prop like the first sprint you mentioned um, that's not your business or at least not your core business, but is that a net good to go on that journey or is it kind of a, a necessary evil? How did you think about I it? I think, okay?
3: I think when you're selling at enterprises at the price tag that we were selling to, it was, it was absolutely a net good. Um, you know, our team is relatively fresh. Uh, they had to get their boots under them technically in, in terms of what we were doing and that the, the, the way we were even selling the product originally, without these paid engagements to essentially say, yeah, for you to deploy into our environment, well, we're on AWS. And another com- another customer would say, well, we're on Google Cloud. And another customer would say, well, we're on Azure. So you need to support all of these things. And our product inherently needs to control both the hardware and the software because all of these evaluations are run on GPUs for the most part. And to scale, we need to be able to scale nodes in a cluster to you know run these evaluations. So <laughs> enterprises all have very different strict requirements on what you are allowed to do, how you're allowed to deploy, how their authorization schemes need to be set up, how their security rules need to be set up, uh, what level of scrutiny you're applying to uh, vulnerabilities that are arising in in third-party software that you are incorporating in your solution. There's a ton of things that you need to be able to look out for. and Having these two massive paid engagements early got a lot of the guys on the team um, used to what enterprise communication looks like, what enterprise process looks like. And, you know, really just the full cycle of how do you talk to these guys? How how do you provide value? How do you make them like you? Um, all very important.
2: And, and Matt, I I would say when you when you ask about it being a net good, it was interesting. The first engagement, uh, some of the investors that we were talking to, some of the, our current investors, There are these really, this really wonderful motherhood advice, say, be careful, you know, on, you know, getting in, you know, uh, working with these folks, they're going to take you down a path, it's not going to be helpful. You know, the the practical side for entrepreneurs is you get, you're gonna have advisors that tell you that Uh, it didn't mean squat to us, we were, we had a burn rate, we had a, we had a staff, someone wanted to pay us $10,000 a month, we said, Absolutely. And we knew very quickly that it wasn't necessarily going to be that first one was not at all core to the business, but we needed the revenue. Uh, And it was a huge brand name that we were able to use and we were able to get a testimonial from that client. And so... Notwithstanding the fact that it risked us being pulled away and we were going to lose cycles that we're going to contribute a product. It's just a practical problem you need to solve. And yeah. I, I, I got to tell you, I get annoyed by advi- uh, some of the advisors that were cautioning us to be careful. It's like, yeah, it's good for you to say, but when you got you know your burn rates going and you want cash in the bank and mm-hmm. you want to have a, a flagship you know customer that you can parade around to, to the next customer... Uh, That meant more than anything else at the time. And so, you know, that was the first one. The second one was way more core. Uh, But again, we got, oh, what what if they, uh, you know, what if they need product that you can't scale to other customers? Yeah, yeah, we know. We know that's that's a problem, but you're going to do your best. Our team constantly talks about how we can, whatever we're building, how it can be repurposed and, and sold in the next engagement for the next customer. We do that all the time. And that, that's what you manage as, as, the, as the team is, you know, try not get sucked too far down a hole of just doing a solution for one customer. We get that. But there's a real practical side of what you need to do in the early days, notwithstanding all the best advice from your advisors that say, be careful.
0: Yeah, Dan, you talked about building solutions with your customers. What goes through your mind when you hear about those early builds?
1: Well, it's what I was going to ask Stephen is in an ideal world, um, notwithstanding the, all the learning that Stan talked about and the engagement and the exposure that you talked about to these, these large clients, um, in an ideal world, if you, if you had an investor willing to throw a little bit more money at you so that you didn't have to take that $10,000 a month, would you have taken, would you have gone there? Um, yes. Uh, but,
2: but here's what we would have done with more resources. It would mean that we would have the bandwidth to continue what we're doing and still engage with that client to glean all those lessons that we learned, even for the team to start to understand what it's like to work with an enterprise grade client. Like it was a real learning experience for the team. So now in hindsight, I just wish we would have had enough bandwidth That we could have carved off two or three individuals that would have just worked with that team and the rest of the team continued on building what we need to do. Um, And I don't know at what point how much you need, right? Like I'm thinking if we had an extra $3 million in the bank at that time, we would have done that. If we had of let's say, gone to a Series A and done a $25 million round, might we then be able to say, in fact, we're there now, like we're going to be doing a Series A here probably in the next 18 months. And we're going to hopefully do call it 15 to 25 million. It'll be interesting whether James and I and and, and I would say the team uh, can will be comfortable passing on certain business, certain enterprise business, if we have those that kind of money in the bank. And we're building the solution that we're pretty confident the market needs. will be certain clients that will say, no, we're not going to do that for you. Um, I mean, yeah, at some point we will. But in the early days, it's really tough to imagine uh, walking away from 10, dollars $40,000 a month um, during the first, say, 36 months of your startup. It'd be really tough to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I, I probably would have been one of those guys giving you that bad advice. But <laughs> as I as I listen to you, um, you know, you have to be, in my mind, I would balance it. it's less about the financials, although I know you got to keep the doors open. And it's more about just being in a market with a client. Um, and it gives you the opportunity to talk to them about other problems and engage with in their networks. And you yeah. know, you never know where that's going to lead you. And in, in many of these stories, that leads to a good place. And so I I, I really, I really agree with you from that perspective, for sure. You know, yeah. you got to be in the market with clients doing something. You, right? you
2: do. And, and in fact, that's a really good, because you talked about how do you navigate that long sales cycle? One of the ways you navigate it is you get your foot in the door. So this, that engagement with the defense contractor came through one of the incubators, uh, the Rogers Cyber Secure Incubator, right? That was an introduction. We got into one of the labs. Uh, investors will all you, tell you that getting into one of the enterprise innovation labs is uh, what some investors have told that's the kiss of death. You go there to die because it, that, that tech often doesn't get deployed. Again, we, d- we, we ignored that advice and said, look, it, it's not going to hurt us to be engaged with an enterprise to to do anything. So we had that conversation. That engagement ended uh, just over a year ago. Just this week, we met with two other senior principals who had flown in, uh, one from Calgary, one from Toronto, came to Atlantic Canada. They're looking for tech, tech in Atlantic Canada we had an hour meeting with them and now they're they're starting to scope out other areas of the enterprise i mean this enterprise it has tens of thousands of people hundreds and hundreds of departments there is work for us to do but to navigate to the right person to have the credibility to be able to engage with that person and get a contract this is the enterprise sales process and if we hadn't done that engagement we wouldn't be still at the table today and i suspect it's another 12 months before we have another paid engagement so that'll be 24 months from the first one till we have maybe a recurring revenue with that client and that's the journey you got to go on and accept at least when you're in the enterprise space
0: yeah yeah that's really cool i i find myself processing and trying to wear the the hat of the listener and i think a lot of listeners are going to are going to really appreciate you walking us through that journey let's um let's double click on the solution Um, Stan, I have the pleasure of talking to you socially often over the chessboard. Mm, And last time we talked about the core solution, you got me there, which is great Uh because you are, you are pretty high level. So teach me like I'm 12. Oh God. Tell me about the core solution here. We're looking at those six industries on your website. I'm sure it goes well beyond that or will eventually, but let's talk about the core solution. So where do we find ourselves right now? And and what's Troj building?
2: Hey Stan, I just just uh, I'll pipe in here. Pretend you're explaining our tech to me,
3: and, <laughs> well, I, and I'm
2: sure Matt will understand it.
3: I, I can try for sure. Um, okay. but yeah, like on our website, we have a lot of industries listed, and the fact yeah. of the matter is, it doesn't really matter what industries we list. Um, the problem is just inherent with AI. It doesn't matter what modality, uh, machine learning just has this inherent problem where it is trained to do one thing,' It's learning the surrogate function uh, of, of, about the real world, and you're trying to apply some algorithm to it to get an answer. and And I, I guess optimizing for those correct answers, which is what machine learning does, and forgive me, I'm going to start with the problem. Machine learning has this problem where you're trying to optimize for these answers. Mm-hmm. and and because you you're, you're, you're estimating your function, it will introduce error. There, there will be inherent difference between the real world and your estimator, your estimated function, right? That's just a fact. Um, you're learning from all of these samples um, that that have, uh, you know, uh, data sample x, it's labeled y. It's an estimate, right? These functions, these models, they're all just estimator functions.
0: So there's a reality gap of some kind. Yes. In and that system.
3: Yes. So there, there's there's a you can't model the real world accurately, and as a result of these small errors, mathematically speaking. Max will probably uh, you know, skewer me if he does listen to this call, but it essentially makes it impossible to optimize efficiently. And and I, I guess what that basically means is if you give me a model, um, and you give me some weighted graph, let's say of, of Uptown St. John, and you say to me, find the shortest path from A to B, right? And you want me to apply an algorithm to that model to produce the output for Uptown St. John or or for any weighted graph, that would be fine assuming the model was not learned it was not estimated by in the machine learning sense it, it means i could give you an algorithm and even provide you some guarantees about that algorithm's ability to approximate a correct decision in a reasonable amount of time like that is data structures and algorithms 101 it's what people learn in third year of university when they're taking computer right but in the real world you know if there is this precursor that the model must first be learned or approximated from data right from some distribution. Like you don't have the exact weighted graph. It, it, you don't have the, it takes five minutes to drive down King to this intersection and you take a right and you go up here for 10 minutes, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, you just give me a bunch of data points, right, um, of intersections in the city and you say, what is the shortest path from A to B, right? Now, effectively, I have to learn or approximate the model, right? You didn't give me the weights like a neural net is just a bunch of interconnected nodes with weights. You didn't give me the weights, so I got to learn the weights. And if the model is approximated or machine learned in this way, by definition, we have to introduce some small amount of error, right? I can't get the perfect weights. I'm learning them. I might be off on a couple of distances or times, right? Um, and so, yeah, if you give me all of those intersections, I can estimate the weights uh, and I can try to optimize for the shortest path after the fact. But my surrogate model, so to speak, will always be skewed, right? each edge can have plus or minus some error, right? And and because the solution is traversing these nodes, you know, it takes into account all of the edges for the perfect solution. Each edge's error essentially compounds with the others. And it really screws up my optimization algorithm after the fact. And and then suddenly instead of, you know, five minutes to go down king, it's my my estimator said it was seven minutes. And instead I take union and now my entire solution is screwed. This is inherently the problem with, with machine learning. So So let me
0: try to go on this journey with you. So, Mm. and this is starting really well. So let me try to go on the journey with you and and it'll be fun if I get it wrong, because then you can jump in and correct me. So Google sends out its Waymo vehicle on the streets of Phoenix Mm. and Waymo is trying to create its own image of the real world. And then there's the actual real world and it has to make all of these calculations in between. Has to stop at stop signs. It has to stop for pedestrians. It has to do all this stuff, and it's trying to approximate its own image of what's actually
3: real. Essentially, yeah, it's 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 it model of the world. It's not actually seeing the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 just like due to a lot of math, I'll kind of cut it here. But due to a lot of math, the fact that it's estimating, um, it inherently induces error, and because of that error and its compounding effect. I cannot give you any formal guarantees about the algorithm. So back to what I said about the beginning, if I had the way to graph perfectly, I knew it was an exact representation of what I was trying to determine. I could give you guarantees about the algorithm's performance in a reasonable amount of computational time, but when it's estimated, I can never give you those guarantees. And as a result of me not being able to guarantee the algorithm that I'm running, this optimization, when organizations take these predictions that the model is making, and they transform them into real world decisions, they expose themselves to a ton of risk because they cannot guarantee what their algorithm's even doing. It's a black box, right? And it's all it all comes down to the fact that it was, esti- it, it, it was an estimated function, right? It, and that estimated function is gonna have error and that error is gonna compound. And that makes it unreliable. I can no longer ever give you a formal guarantee on a on a function that was learned from data. And that's inherently the problem, like in a, in a nutshell. Um, yeah. And as a result, all of these risks are bias, racism, explainability. You can't tell what you can't tell me what the algorithm's doing. Why was my loan denied? Um, adversarial attacks, corner edge cases, silent errors that that don't even manifest themselves in the traditional cybersecurity sense. Like if as long as the input to the model is clean and looks good, the model's not going to complain. It'll produce an, a, a classification, and then this classification is taken. Um, in, in critical business decisions that affect people's lives every single day. And they're, they're used to make real world decisions on people's credit, on people's health, um, you know, on driving on roads. And I think the regulation is coming to basically say, you guys need to be able to pr- attempt to provide some formal guarantees on what you guys are saying your stuff does. And you the, the, the excuse of it's a, it's a black box story. This is just how it is, this isn't going to fly anymore, unfortunately
0: so the more that we move from just because of volume in a lot of these problems from human analysis to machine analysis we have to have some protections in place so some of these real world consequences don't come to pass
3: exactly and it, and it's happened you see it every day i mean tesla's the the classic trope i mean that company gets hammered all the time and it's really you know Level five driving and all of this—it's do I think it's ever going to get there in the sense that they say it's going to drive you know across every single street no problem with with tr- current machine learning I don't believe that to be the case but what I do hope happens is that I think level level five driving is really just a question of who's paying the insurance and who's at li- who's liable if uh, somebody crashes and you know we we see it now like with this level two people are getting really confident with what it's able to do and it drives, it runs somebody over and the system disengages within. 0.2 seconds at the very end when it's detecting a crash and and the person who who, who unfortunately killed somebody is liable. Um, Zillow is another big one. They uh, I think they laid off like 50% of their staff or something because they were buying up all the houses and they had this AI pricing algorithm that was just scooping everything up and they were paying way over market and they got, oh, wow. they got smoked. Yeah, look them up. Uh, another mm-hmm. one I believe was a while back LinkedIn's search algorithm favored men. Heavily, um, so you know a, a classic example of sexism there. Microsoft mm-hmm. Tay is another huge one. Um, but, you know, 4chan got a hold of this Microsoft Tay bot that was released in like 2014 and made it spew horribly racist things. Um, you know, all of these problems, sexism, bias. You know, Tesla's crashing due to not being robust. Zillow losing all They're all inherently the same problem. They they all stem from this error and. Essentially what Trojai tries to do is to provide a testing framework to essentially try to test your model to these distributional drifts that it could see in the wild in advance of deployment. Um, and, and, and I can give you some examples of that if you're interested, but.
0: Yeah, let's go, let's go with one really cool example. We'll come to Steven first because he yeah, wants okay. to jump yeah. in and then we'll come back to a real example.
2: Yeah. And Matt, I, I want to just pick up, you, you said something interesting and, and it's, it is the way to think about it. But you said, you know, as volume of, you know, uh, decisions or work needs to be done, right? We've moved away from people and we've moved to doing, you know, asking machines to do this for us. Uh, remember the days though, and, and maybe uh, you and Stan are too young, but Dan and I do remember the days that when we asked people to make decisions, we had all kinds of uh, parameters for them to make those decisions. So just think in banking, right? If you made a credit decision, you had all these rules that said, okay, the client has to be this, the client has, to... and we we accepted that as normal, right? A, a, an employee didn't say, why are you giving me all these constraints? It was these are all sort of tested and true. We get down to a point where we get a subject subject matter expert but they're surrounded by this framework that allows them to make good decisions in the environment where they're that subject matter expert. Now, what's odd for us is we need to do that exact same thing for machines. But what's interesting for us is we sometimes feel pushback, especially from the data science teams. They're like, we want to make, we want to be the subject matter expert, but don't give me any of those rules or boundaries around me to make my decision making better. And it's a little bit, uh, it, it it's just it's a bit of hypocrisy, right, that for some reason we know the world we had in, in with was a human centric decision maker. Mm-hmm. We need to build that exact same environment for machines. And and Troji is about trying to help build those frameworks and, and, the, and that decision, uh, uh, you know, framework to help the machines make decisions better, more accurately and within bounds that we know are realistic. And so I think it's just a really good analogy to help listeners or anyone. Even for me, I'm like, that's a perfect way. We wouldn't let, you know, some dude make a decision on a billion dollar loan without any rules or regulations around how that person made the decision. Yet somehow we think we should just, you know, let a car make decisions without any of us checking Mm -hmm. What's going on? So Troji is really about, we don't want to put the brakes on innovation. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We want to try and put the kind of framework around decisions, machine decisions that allow the innovation to really get advanced before we let these people make too many mistakes. And all of a sudden we push ourselves back into some kind of AI winter. We really want to support innovation. Uh-huh. At, at our heart, we're, we're real nerds about wanting to advance AI. And that's what we're all about. So we'll let, yeah, go ahead, Dan.
1: Yeah. Are you, I have, I think it's an interesting question. We'll see if you think it is based on what I heard, do you, do you think that Trojai is living off this notion that we are holding machines to a higher standard than we hold humans in these types of decisions? Because if a car crashes and a human's driving it, we sort of expect that to happen once in a while. But if a car crashes and a machine's driving it, you know, we don't expect that to happen. We, we, we're holding them literally to a higher standard.
2: I think, Stan, this is the question you, you've you gone over this and, and even how this how things get reported, right? The number of accidents that machines have versus humans ends up being fractional. It does feel that way. But, Stan, I know you've talked to this in the past. What's your take on it?
3: Well, yeah. Being being directly on the spot, I guess I don't really have my uh, you know answer in the chamber. But you know, just to your point about you know if if a Tesla, of course we need to we need to hold machines to a higher standard than humans. But it's not going to be perfect. There are going to be accidents. Um, and I, I guess it really just comes down to if we could get if we could get um, you know a Tesla to drive one percent better than the average human, is that even is that even acceptable or good? Um, and, and at what point are you playing God in that, in that sense where you're just, you're not, you would, I would imagine you would see an entirely different class of accidents and they may be more or less severe than the average accident that, you know, that, that a human gets into. Maybe the average accident that is reported is just a fender bender, but maybe when these algorithms screw up, they all floor the gas to go, well, I guess not gas and Tesla's, uh, instance, they floor <laughs> the battery, uh, and they go 200 miles per hour off a cliff because they interpreted, uh, you know, the lines on the road wrong, because there were some white rocks hanging off to the side of the road. So to answer that question, I'm not entirely sure there's a lot of confounding variables into, you know, how bad our accidents, what even constitutes an accident. But if you could have a machine that was slightly better than a human, to the point where you could underwrite the liability of that machine, yourself, and take full responsibility for what happens, I think that is as far as we will ever hope to get, at least in my lifetime. Uh, It's a question of liability. Are we holding machines to a higher standard? Um, No, I think it's really all about the money. And it's are we holding machines to a high enough standard that we would underwrite them for an insurance policy. But other than that, I I really don't know if if the moral question is being asked in the market as you phrased it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question uh, because, you know, arguably Waymo, get away from Tesla because they don't use good tech in this anyways. Waymo <laughs> is a way better driver than a human, like mm-hmm. a like a materially better driver than a human. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, you know, the ethical questions around when accidents happen. And I think you hit on something like Waymo's not going to get into fender benders. But, you know, once in a while, they're going to have to make a decision. Do I, you know, do I hit the lady with the baby carriage or do I hit the guy on the bicycle? I got to pick one. Yeah. And uh, we always have that conversation around it. Um, you know, I'm curious, like, is Troj going to play a role in that? In, in, in that space? Like, are you guys taking advantage, essentially, of <laughs> our notion that we expect these things to be better, which is a kind of a cool thing when you think about it?
2: Yeah, no, we, we absolutely uh, view, uh, th- there is a role for us. And so one of the, th- the way we frame up what we do is around responsible AI, right? So responsible AI has, we think, three main operational tenets. It's about creating models that aren't biased. It's about creating models that are explainable and about creating models that are robust and secure. And that's, we, we operate in that third pillar. By the way, that's built on a foundation of good privacy, good ethics, right? Yeah, that's an absolute baseline start for doing good AI. But it's in this world of responsible AI. The other thing that we differentiate importantly is that responsible AI, we differentiate slightly from trusted AI. Trusted AI is after you've built your AI responsibly, can it be trusted? So this is the world that we live in. And Trojai wants to play a major role in helping advance the robustness and security of models so that we can help our clients deploy responsible, secure, and safe AI so that it can be trusted. And that is, we do see ourselves, it's a small part of a very important piece that's going to allow AI to be advanced, deployed, adopted, uh On we we hope on an accelerated basis. That's where we mm-hmm. want to play.
0: You know what's coming to my mind? It's funny. I was talking to my dad the other day. He's sixty six, big baseball guy, and he was telling me how we were watching the Blue Jays, and he was telling me how baseball is considering heading towards an AI driven strike zone, and my dad thinks this is just going to ruin baseball forever. Ah, uh, this and is great. Night, The night that the the first night at Yankee Stadium where some Boston hackers have screwed up the (laughs) algorithm for the strike zone, there's going to be anarchy at Yankee Stadium. So what I'm hearing is Troj needs to save baseball for my father.
2: We will. We they the, the Boston hacker won't get in because Trojai will already been there and it'll be protected. But look at the, that debate. So James. So James and I aren't that. Well, look, at I'm closer to your father's age, uh, I guess, than James is. But James and I have this debate all the time. James feels the same, a huge baseball fan. He thinks A.I. will ruin baseball the, the same way. I, on the other hand, um, and, and not so much a baseball fan, but a huge sports fan, I love the idea of, you know, two people competing on a level playing field. And it's never level when you have, you know, humans making decisions that are, you know, sometimes making mistakes. I love the idea. I mean, if you introduce AI to baseball, now it is who's got the better team, not who gets the better calls, not who can influence the ref. Now, again, James goes, that's ah, part of the game. Oh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But when it comes down to the skill set, I love the idea of baseball teams going head to head based on skills and not poor decision making. So that's where I love. That's a great AI application. And yes, Trojai will protect the decisions that that AI makes. Stan, I got to hear from you on that. <laughs> well, well a, a I,
3: good example
2: I, or not good example?
0: It's a,
3: it's a fairly good example. And you know, you can talk about any of these um, problem. You can you can make up any problem in your head, and we can start. Kind of hypothesizing, what are the edge cases that this particular AI would see, and like, or something that determines the strike zone of an AI? You know, there's tons of them. What if you know you, you get an exceptionally short player, uh, and and you know you're trying to determine <laughs> you know something like this, and it mistakes its head for its for its chest, and all of a sudden the strike zone is over the top of its head. You know, what if it was dark that day? What if it was lighter? What if the angle of the camera was different? Uh, What if the pitcher decides to throw sidearm or overhand? All of these things, um, you know, what if he throws a knuckleball and the spin of the ball is going to the left versus going to the right? All of these edge cases are things that I can pretty much guarantee most people that that would be assigned to build a system like this today wouldn't even be thinking of. Or if they are, the solution would just be, well, we're just going to try and collect the best possible data that we can, the best videos that represent a wide distribution of the possible things my model is going to see. And we're just going to build it and check the accuracy of it, and okay, looks good. Um, whereas with all of these different types of distributional drift, you can't account for all of them. Like you're not going to take this strike zone model and say, okay, go drive the Tesla now, right? Like that—that that would be more towards um, you know a general intelligence solution. We can't solve for all of the edge cases, or you would essentially have artificial general intelligence. We just need to solve for the ones that matter. And the ones that matter in that case, you could sit down and probably think about what are all of the cases that my model needs to handle that can possibly happen when this ball goes over the over the plate between a guy's nipples and a guy's knees. Um, That is inherently what we do. We we provide uh, a a framework to say, well, if you built this model in PyTorch, here's a slew of tests that we think are good, and you can make your own if you want to. You can rotate the angle of the image. You can increase the contrast of the image. Jitter the color of the image. You can do all of these things fully automatically. If you don't know enough about it, then we'll profile the data in the model for you and pick the best tests that we think are. And we'll give you the results of those tests, and you can determine: Hey, I really need my my uh, model to be more robust to uh, you know an open dome versus a closed dome. The lighting's different, so we're gonna we're gonna write custom tests for that. And we're gonna scale it across all of our models automatically, and we're gonna see how our model performs beyond just accuracy we're going to see how it performs on these tests that change brightness. Just very simple test what happens when you change the brightness. And that is how I would do that problem.
0: This is this is really awesome guys. I'm going to I'm going to end with Dan, but Stephen, tell our listeners what does the next 12 to 24 months look like at Troj?
2: Yeah. um, So, you know, we we talk about this with the team all the time, which is we're now at, I think, the toughest part of a startup journey, which is you've built product, um, your production team, your product team's really happy because they're just building what they think they need to build. So the first problem is we're going to have customers who are going to say, no, no, I need it built this way. And that can be frustrating for your product team who said, well, we didn't build it that way. And now we're going to have to go back and change all this stuff. and So it can be really frustrating for your product team as we start getting that real feedback. But then the the challenge on the business development side is navigating that long sales cycle, at least for us with enterprises. So what the next 12 to 24 months looks like is we need to find and this is the the term that we get told we got to find that product market fit Um, and that is the only thing that we need to do and once we do that uh, that means that we're going to be iterating on a product solution it's going to you know meet the demands of the market at the same time we're going to be managing our burn rate and we're going to be out in the in the investor marketplace trying to find and have access to funding when we need it when we need to scale we're going to have to go quickly Because, you know, every day that goes by, we're getting closer to the end of our funded runway. And the minute we find that product market fit and that we can demonstrate that to the investors, then we're going to have to raise around. So right now it's just about juggling a, a, a number of balls in the air, but it's all about delivering a solution that the market wants. And it is the hardest. It's the hardest on the head. Uh, It's exhausting and it's, it's it's not that fun. Like I I gotta be honest, right? There's nothing Mm -hmm. really exciting. When you build a product and it works, you know, there's high fives. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Look what we did. And then you go have a beer and you're really happy. There is none of that now here because you get, you get someone to sign with you now and you do a high five for the signature, but now you got to deliver and then you got to document and then you got to troubleshoot and then you got to deploy and then you got to scale. There's the Journey right now feels endless while you while you sign up the first or the next sort of six enterprise clients for us. And it is just no darn fun at this point, but it is part of the journey. We'll get through this and it kind of gets more fun again. You know, if we do a $25 million Series A and we get a hundred customers, you know, four years from now, we'll look back and say, yeah, no brainer. But this is the least fun part, I think, of the startup journey. And that's what we're going to do for the next 12 to 24.
0: Yeah, when you raise that twenty-five mil, you'll you'll come back and announce it on this podcast. That's the that's what I'm mean. happy right. to. Happy to. Beautiful. <laughs> last okay. Last word to my co-host Dan. Um, for our listeners trying to build a sales-focused culture, maybe they're a founder where the sales burden is still very much on their shoulders. When do you think about? Stephen alluded to this. When do you think about bringing on? your first C-suite level sales person. What's the calculus there? You're the founder where sales are still very much flowing through you. When do you bring on and and stack that sales team? And we'll end with this.
1: Well, I I think Stephen answered the question up front. And, uh, you know, this notion that um, here's something interesting that we're looking at. Uh, You know, if you took a founder or a founder team and you assessed their sales expertise so their ability to drive early stage sales find those lead customers engage them in, in the right way um, you would probably find in this space anyways that your founders don't have those skill sets right or those competencies and um and that's not always true like uh, not you know we've talked to other founders who came from that world who were sales oriented but it's true in, in a lot of the cases in, in the sort of high-end tech space. And so I, I would argue that you need to bring that that person on either as a co-founder early on or you need to make sure that you're funding that role uh, with your first round of funding, with your angel round. And, uh, and so I think, Stephen, you were right on there. That was the best advice that I've heard in a long time. And... Uh, you know we're going to violently agree on this it's it's really important
0: to all the entrepreneurs listening to the podcast keep building keep going we'll come back with episodes weekly to help you on your journey Stan Petley Stephen Goddard from Trojai we'll make sure that we link to the show notes where everybody can find you and what you're building and all the media you're putting out around your solution thanks for being here guys and thanks for listening